Open your Bibles to the book of uh, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read to verse 11, and then we'll pray together. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done on the cross on our behalf. What you've done for us, Lord, is it's priceless, Lord. We can't put a price on it. That you didn't, you didn't redeem us with things that are perishable like gold and silver, but with your, your very son. And so this morning, Lord, we turn our eyes and our hearts to you, and we ask that you would lead us in your word. We submit ourselves underneath the authority of your word, and we say that God... Speak to us by it today. I pray for anyone in here that, is, um, that hasn't put their faith in Jesus. I pray that you would reveal yourself. I pray that they would, they would, they're, they're here because, because you're seeking them, God. So I pray that you would use the word today to open our eyes, that you would speak to hearts and say, let there be light. Would you minister to us today as your people, as your church is assembled, that you would minister to your people we love you, God. I pray that you would anoint me and use my mouth and my mind today to communicate your truth in humility. You are good, Lord. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so last week, last week we started Mark and we started the church with an overview of the book of Mark. And we said that this, the, the, the book of Mark concerns the real Jesus. That was kind of like the catchphrase that we used throughout last week. He was, it was the real Jesus. During the time of Mark's writing, there were people retelling and recasting the story of Jesus. So Mark sets out to write his first a book, the first actual gospel. He actually created a genre, which is pretty cool. He created a genre of writing that had never been done before, and we call them the gospels. He set out to write a book to, re, to, to tell who Jesus really was. Not, that, not a Jesus that's recast or made up. Now, not only can, and I, and I want this to be, to be known that you guys know that we're not trying to say we have it right and everybody else has it wrong, okay? Not only can the, the secular relativist be guilty of reconstructing Jesus, but the church can be guilty of doing the same thing. By saying that Jesus is behind my cause or my political party, this happens all the time. So what we have endeavored to do is let's go through the book of Mark together and let's find in Mark who the real Jesus is. The unadulterated, unfiltered, unpasteurized, raw, organic Jesus, if you're into that sort of thing. Okay? 
we're looking at like the real raw Jesus here. And what Mark does is he doesn't really go off into a lot of what he taught. What Mark does is he captures what Jesus did and how people reacted. That's what he loves to do. I hope that maybe you got a little curious and you started reading the book of Mark this last week if you were here last week. So what he does is he, like, he, he presents Jesus going, this is who he is and this is what people thought about him. And what he does is, at one minute, Jesus is casting out demons, and you're like, oh my gosh, look at the power he has over the demonic realm. And then the very next pericope is somebody saying, but Jesus is demonic. And Mark doesn't answer the question. He's like, who do you say that he is? So it gives you this balanced approach of who he is and what he came to do. And what we said, what, what, what makes the book of Mark so fascinating and such a fun read is that from the opening line, Mark lets us know who Jesus is and what the gospel is from the very beginning, but nobody else knows. No one else but the demons, actually. The, only the demons are the ones that get it right. Like in Mark chapter 5, like we read last week, that demoniac that was from the tombs that came out, and he said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Like he knows, but nobody else really knows. The demonic realm knows who Jesus is, but nobody else knows. And this, this lie, right here, this is where the dramatic irony comes in to the book. You and I as readers know the identity of Jesus from the opening line, but none of the characters know it. So the suspense arises from this tension between the reader's knowledge and the ignorance of the actors. We know from the beginning that the real Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the gospel concerns him, but ironically, no one else knows, which I think is so brilliant because the setting and the context of the book of Mark is unaware Unawareness and unbelief. So the whole context, the way he writes this book is everyone is unaware and and no one really believes. Mark will actually use this unbelief and unawareness to present who Jesus really is. Now, this is what this means. This means this book can handle your unbelief. If you're in here this morning and you don't really believe, this book can handle your unbelief. It It won't crumble under the weight of your unbelief. It will actually use that to show us who Jesus is. It's actually the context and the climate of the book. And it gives it its dramatic punch at the end of the book. It's just like, with a, like a good movie with a twist. When you're like watching a movie, that at the very end of the movie, it has this huge twist, and, and, and it sheds light on the whole story. At the end of it, you see clearly, and you're like never the same again. You can never see the movie the same again. It's like the, the movie The Usual Suspects, or The Sixth Sense or something. But at the end of the movie, you get this aha moment, and you're like, oh my gosh. Bruce Willis is a ghost. And then, every, and then he realizes it, and then it changes everything, and then, you, and then it like flashes through the movie and you see it. Or when at the very end of The Usual Suspect, you realize that verbal is Kaiser Soze, and he's like walking with the limp, and then he starts walking straight, and he grabs his lighter and lights a cigarette, and he's like super cool at the end. And he steps in that car and drives away, and then it flashes through the whole movie, and you're like, oh my gosh, I never knew that, and nobody knew it. See, this, the, the director, what, what the director and the writers use is the ignorance of the actors and partly the audience to give it that punch at the end of the movie. And that's what Mark does. He actually uses people's unbelief and unawareness to, to his favor to show you who Jesus really is. And once you see who Jesus really is, and at the end of the book you get that aha moment, you see Jesus and you're never the same again. And you'll never see Jesus the same again. This is how the story will unfold today. We won't cover that much. We'll cover 11 verses. 
But this is how we'll see the, the story unfold, and it's on the screen. We'll see this, th- these three things. A voice from the wilderness, a call to repentance, and a solidarity with humanity. A voice from the wilderness, a, a call to repentance, and a solidarity with humanity. So let's, let's, let's concern ourselves with the first one here. A, a, a voice from the wilderness. Now, it says here at the very beginning, verse 2, that a voice came, and it wasn't just any voice. Mark takes this voice, and he roots it in, the old, in an Old Testament promise, a deep Old Testament promise. L- look at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. There is an, an Old Testament prediction that before the Lord comes, before the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, before God would redemptively act on behalf of humanity, there would come one to prepare his way, getting people ready to receive him. This was, this was like a herald coming before the Messiah. And everyone, all, all the Jewish belief was around this forerunner. They knew about him. Now, you and I, we don't really get it. Some of us, some of this is lost on our ears. But they got it. They understood it. So this guy, and, and, and the way Mark presents him is very peculiar. He's identified as John called the baptizer. He got this name, the baptizer, because he was like the first one to do something like this. Verse 6 describes him as wearing like this camel hair muumuu with like a leather belt around his waist who ate like locusts and wild honey and he looks very peculiar. He's out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness by a river preaching. Now you always know, you don't go, if I was to go out in the middle of nowhere and start preaching, nothing would happen. I'd be preaching the locusts maybe. But, not, but John got all of Jerusalem out to listen to him. Everyone came out to listen to him. Now, these might look like things that are pretty funny. Like, okay, this guy, he wore something pretty weird, and he was out there eating weird things, eating wild honey, out in the middle of the wilderness. And, and, and it looks funny, but there's something, these are like clues to point out what's really going on. They're actually huge contextual marks. Like if I said, I'm going to North Beach to have dinner. If I said something like that, all of a sudden, your mind is flooded with the smell of garlic and sidewalk cafes, tons of people, the utter impossibility of parking. All those things like rush into your head when I say that. That's context. So when, when Mark writes some man with, with this camel hair jumper on, out in the wilderness, preaching, eating locusts and wild honey with the leather belt around his waist, it brings up a context in their mind. There's something going on here. Both the scenes that we'll see today will be sprinkled with scriptural allusions and give us a background to Mark and how he thinks, and what he thinks is very essential for us knowing who the real Jesus is. They tip us off to these unseen forces that are working within history to accomplish the redemption of God. So what are these? Now notice first that he's, John is in the wilderness. The wilderness, why is he in the wilderness? Now the wilderness in the Old Testament is where Israel met God. Israel met God in the wilderness. The wilderness meant something to the people of Israel. It was in the Exodus where they met God. And it was also known as, it was marked as the place of beginnings. That's what they, they, they thought the wilderness was. And it's not the wilderness like, the, like Yosemite to us. This was the barren, dry, hot desert. If you've ever been to Israel, I remember when we went to Israel, we drove all the way through Israel to go down to the Red Sea. And we drove through what was called the wilderness 
and it was a wilderness. It was hot. There was this dust storm. It was, it was insane. Nothing lives in the wilderness. And to the children of Israel, the wilderness is where they met God, and they were saved out of slavery, called out to worship God from Egypt. The wilderness is where they received the law. The wilderness is where God miraculously provided for them. The wilderness is a place where everything dies unless God intervenes. It's where they crossed the Jordan and received the promised land in the book of Joshua. It's where God allured the people to win them back in Hosea. There's all this context to the wilderness. And so when you say wilderness, you and I think of like frolicking in a park. They think of dying in the desert and God miraculously providing for them. It meant something to them. Now, this is huge. What it came to be known as, the wilderness, was also a staging ground for God's future victory over the power of evil. It was expected that the second exodus would, would occur in the wilderness. And what John was wearing was very important as well. Mark chooses words very wisely in this very short book. So to stop and say, oh, by the way, he had this camel hair thing on with the leather belt and he wore this. There's something going on there. Mark is giving us a clue of what's going on. John the Baptist dressed just like Elijah the prophet. 2 Kings 1.8 says this. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So John the Baptist goes, what did he wear? Okay, camel's hair. He went and bought, I don't know how he got a camel's hair, but he got it. There's camels everywhere there. But he went to the store and got himself a camel's hair thing. Put a leather belt around his waist, dressed exactly like Elijah, and then went to the wilderness. Elijah was a powerful Old Testament prophet that was associated with both the wilderness and the Jordan River and had become known as the figure who would usher in the kingdom of God. They said that Elijah will come first. And John comes in the desert dressing just like him. John the Baptist outfit was also this like primal back to, had this primal back to the earth quality about it as well. It was like reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God made Adam and Eve animal skins to wear. There was even this like folklore that went about like they, when the, the Jews would talk about what the Garden of Eden was like, they said they had this river of honey in the Garden of Eden. So it was like bringing up all these images and all these things. What this does is it awakens this eschatological event of the end times, these promises that have been dormant for 300 years. It's called the intertestamental period where nothing prophetic was said. And they all knew this and they were all aware of this. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene with a new beginning, a return to paradise. All these ideas were present in John's ministry. And now John's message. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He called everyone to repentance. Repentance was his message, and it was exemplified through baptism. So John came on the scene, and he started preaching repentance through baptism. It was a repentance baptism. They were tied together. And the way verse 4 is structured, look at verse 4. A baptism of repentance. In Greek, that word means this. A change of mind, repentance, and thus of action, baptism. These two things are tied together. John was saying, you, are, you repent and are baptized. You can't repent without being baptized, and you can't be baptized without repentance. They were tied together in John's ministry. 
He says, it says, a change of mind and thus of action, consequent upon the realization that one has sinned and that sin is wrong. Thus, repentance and baptism are inseparable in John's ministry. He preached repentance. And the Hebrew context of repentance means this, a wholehearted return to God. And John demands that all, I want you to hear this, he commands that everyone be baptized. Everyone. No one is excluded from John's baptism. Tons of people from every distinction and walk of life came to the wilderness. Pharisees came, Sadducees came, outcast publicans came, the semi-heathen soldiers came. All of them met at this river in this desert on common ground. See, here's here's what's so mind-blowing about this then. Jews never got baptized. They had various ritual washings, but never baptized because they were never really considered unclean. They were always considered clean. So all they needed to do was like wash their hands. That's it. They were considered clean Jews, God's chosen people, so they never got baptized. The only people that were baptized were proselytes, to be baptized into the faith. This is why John's ministry was so startling to people. It called everyone to be baptized. It signified that your pedigree and your moral record did not matter. Everyone was going to have to be saved by grace to enter into this kingdom. So when John says repent, he's not talking any less to the religious priest than he is to the fornicating heathen. So it shall be in the church. What we have prayed for a very long time about this church is that this church would be marked by repentance. Not that the unrighteous would repent, not that this church would go and stand in Union Square and tell all of San Francisco to repent, that we would gather together and say we are a community of repentance. We want, we, the best summary of this church is this, we suck and God is awesome. And that's what we really believe. We are called, every one of us is called to repent. The church should walk in repentance always, turning wholehearted to God. In 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the the church in Wittenberg, it said this, it opened this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And what's so fascinating about John's baptism is he called everyone to repent. The priest and the prostitute out there, repent, turn. Your pedigree doesn't save you. Who you are or where you live doesn't save you. Your self-righteousness will never save you. You must repent to be ready for this king. And a major part of Jewish worship was the various kinds of ritual washings. We just talked about that. They, they represented the need for being holy and cleansed from their sin in order to stand before a holy God. Now, Gentile converts who wanted to be part of Israel's worship had to be baptized through immersion. They had to go all the way under, but never Jews. You, but here's the deal with, with, bat, with ritual washings and even, and even immersion. If, you're, if you wanted to be a Jew, you had to go all the way underwater to be cleansed because you were totally disgusting and you need to go all the way in. Here's the deal with that. You always did it to yourself. You didn't have somebody else wash your hands. You didn't have somebody else baptize you. You always did it to yourself. And, but John says this. He came and he goes, you can't do it yourself. You can't baptize yourself. I have to baptize you. If you want to be ready for this king, it has to be done by the hands of another. 
here's the point. You can't save yourself. It has to be done by the hands of another. It didn't matter if they were a priest or a prostitute. Everyone had to prepare for this king by somebody else. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself through a marriage. There's some people that if I just get married, then, then I'll be saved. Then I'll, if I just find a good spouse or through a career or through making money or self-expression or artistic expression or sexual freedom or having a family and starting a family or even going to church. None of these things can save you. You can't save yourself. And this is why it was so perfect that John called all of these people to come out to the wilderness. They lived in, it says that all of Jerusalem came out to see John. All of Jerusalem, the the epicenter of God's kingdom. Jerusalem, the city of God, right there. He's called them out to the wilderness, which I think is brilliant and so perfect. Because in the Old Testament, the wilderness or the desert was a picture of death. Because in the wilderness, everything dies. Nothing lives in an Israeli wilderness. Nothing lives there. Go there. Nothing can live. And ironically, it's when you go to the wilderness and everything dies is quite often the place where you find God. The wilderness is where you thought making money can save you, but the well dries up. It's where you thought sexual freedom can save you, but you're still thirsty. It's where you thought going to church was going to save you, but the food that you get there grows stale by Tuesday. It's in the wilderness, the dry and weary land, where you will sing a song like David sang in Psalm 63. It says, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, he sings this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's in the dry and weary land where everything else you look to to save you dies that you realize your soul all along was thirsting for God and your flesh all along was fainting for God. Famous pastor and preacher, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this in a devotional. Listen, child of God, you can lose your possessions, but you cannot lose your God. Like Jonah, you, you can see your plant wither, but your God remains. You may lose your land, but not your God. You may lose your savings, but not your Savior. Even if it came to the worst, and you were left for a while as one forsaken by God, you still would not lose him. Like the Lord Jesus on the cross, you may still call him my God. This is why John was calling him out to the wilderness. This, all of this meant something. What he was doing, he was ushering in the, these end times where the kingdom of God was breaking into humanity. When he was calling them to the wilderness to, to repent and to be baptized, everyone at levels of playing field, everyone has to be baptized, everybody has to, to get ready for this king. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. You have to be baptized. You have to repent. That is how you start to follow Jesus is through Repentance. How is all this possible, though? And what happens next is, is what makes this all possible. We finally are introduced to Jesus. It says this in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here we see a solidarity with humanity. We are introduced with Jesus, but it's a it's a little bit anticlimactic, because if you, if you look at it, look, the, the dramatic tension here, 
he opens up with Isaiah and Malachi's old prophecy that there would be one who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And then John baptizes, getting people ready, and says that there is one coming after him who is far superior, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. So he says all these things. You're like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And then it just says, just simply, and then Jesus comes from Nazareth. And you're left going, wait, Jesus? And Nazareth, Nazareth doesn't even make the Bible until right now. That's how unknown this place is. And he comes from Nazareth. Now, compare these two verses, verse 5 and verse 9. This is very important. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Look at that. And then look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by John in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Mark writes this as a parallel. Mark writes these two verses. It wasn't written in verses then, but... He writes these two sentences to parallel one another. It's very purposeful the way that Mark writes this. Jesus is identifying with all of Israel. Do you see that? In those days Jesus came, verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem came. What Mark is doing here is like Jesus represents all of Jerusalem, Allah, humanity. Jesus represents everyone here. There is a solidarity that there's here. He is the true and better Israel. He's the one that will be completely obedient to the Father. He comes, and he is baptized just like everyone else. He is showing solidarity with people. Jesus had committed no sin. He had no need to repent. It actually says that the people were going down to the River Jordan, confessing their sins, but not Jesus. Jesus was going down to start the ministry of dying for their sins. Notice what happens When Jesus comes up out of the water, verse 10, and when Jesus had come up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It says that heaven, and Mark's the only one to record this, this word torn. All the commentators like, this is their favorite depiction of this event. Heaven was torn open. When the Old Testament uses this sort of language, heaven's open or heaven was torn open, what it means in prophetic Old Testament language is God is about to speak or God is about to act. And someone will get a really quick glimpse into God's purposes. Like when Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1.1, it says, the heavens were open and I saw, and he goes on to say he saw God seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory, and all these crazy-looking angels were around him saying, holy, holy, holy. He, when the heavens were open, he got a glimpse in, and he saw. However, this was not simply heaven opening. It was being torn open, like Isaiah prayed in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what Isaiah prayed. Oh, that you would rend, that you would rip the heavens open, and that you would come down. The prophet Isaiah prays that the barrier between heaven and earth would be torn open and God would be among his people. That was the prayer in Isaiah. And Mark is saying that this is happening in Jesus. In Jesus, the fabric of heaven is torn open and God is among us. This is what this baptism means. If you guys could get a mental picture of what Mark is saying here. Jesus walks right through these crowded people, walks right into the water, and steps into the water and is baptized, and heaven is torn open. God is among his people. 
But notice where Jesus was standing when this happened. When Jesus steps into the water, he steps into people's mess. If you just look at it, their sins, where they had symbolically washed away their sins, Jesus steps right into that. All these people were being baptized in the Jordan River. All these sins were symbolically being washed away in the Jordan River. As Jesus, as these people would go in the river and these people would be baptized, all their sins would be washed away in this river and at the end of it, Jesus walks right into where their sins were washed away and he stands right there allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. Another gospel writer says that John argued with Jesus about him being baptized, but Jesus said that this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. He had to step in. He had to step into our mess. He stood right there, and he was baptized. Now, in the Old Testament, when, an epic, when epic moments happened by riverbanks and waterbeds, when epic moments happened by the, the, the Jordan River or, this, or the Red Sea, what happens? If, if, you've, if you've studied the Old Testament, what happens to water when something epic happens by water? The water parts, right? When Moses stepped to the Red Sea and the children of the water parted. When, when uh, Joshua stood with the priest in the River Jordan, the river parted. When Elijah threw his, his towel into the, to the River Jordan, the river parted. There's always in the Old Testament when there's some amazing event happens by a riverbank, the river parts, but not this time. What parts? Heaven. Heaven's torn wide open, and God is among his people. And this is not so much a sign that we have access to God at this point. It's God has access to us. God takes on flesh. The metaphysical becomes physical, and the word becomes flesh. That's what this points to. When Jesus steps into these waters, Mark records that the only one who saw this was Jesus. He was very careful in saying, and he, Jesus, saw heaven torn open. He saw the dove. He heard the voice. He was the only one, and last week we said this is the messianic secret motif. Remember we said that? It's a fun thing to say. The messianic secret motif is that Jesus knows what's going on, but no one else knows. No one knows and no one gets it until the cross. Look at the vision that that Jesus had at his baptism. Heavens were torn open. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, when it says that, it doesn't say that the Spirit looked like a dove. Okay? It says that the Spirit was descending like a dove. So his descent was like a dove. So it wasn't like this dove above Jesus that's like floating there. It's like the Spirit came and it was descending like a dove, fluttering, literally. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The veil of heaven was torn, but the revelation of who Jesus was remains veiled until the cross. Because what the baptism does is the baptism anticipates the cross. What Jesus did when he stepped into the waters and was baptized anticipates what Jesus would do when he would hang on a cross. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 if you have them. If you don't, it's up on the screen. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 37. And it says this, and, and this was at the point where Jesus was on the cross, he hung there, he's just about to breathe his last and die. And this is what, how Mark records it in these three verses. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that this way, that in this way he breathed his last and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Commentator Joel Marcus comments on this and says this. In the overall structure of Mark, the baptismal events anticipate those that occur at the end of the gospel. Jesus breathes out his spirit. The curtain of the temple is torn, and the centurion acclaims Jesus as the Son of God. These three things that happen at his baptism are exactly what happened at the cross. The baptism of Jesus standing in that dirty river in identification with humanity is pointing forward to that ultimate baptism on the cross when he would give up his spirit, when the centurion would, would come to realize and confess that he is the Son of God, and the curtain of the temple is torn. Now, something interesting about this curtain that was torn before we close. The curtain that, was, that it's speaking of here was located in the temple, in the temple of God. This is what it's speaking of. If, if to you and me, you're like, the temple was torn, what does that mean? I don't get that. What's the big deal? This temple was a huge deal. At the time of, 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 of Jesus, it was Herod's temple. The temple was the center of all spiritual experience to the Jews. This is where the Jews gathered and, to meet with God and get things right with God and offered sacrifices and offerings to God. But the temple, if you looked at it and you studied the temple, it's all about separation. It had, a, it had all these different courts. It had the Gentile court and a woman's court and a leper's court. And then through another gate was this priest's court and then the holy place. And no one can go into the holy of holies but one, the high priest, once a year got to go in. And what separated, it was all these walls and all these things. And what finally separated, like the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, was this curtain that was there. The Bible says that this is the very curtain that was torn. And what's fascinating about this curtain is what this curtain looked like. We're told in the book of Exodus what this curtain looks like because this is when Moses got the blueprints for this temple or this tabernacle then. It turned into the temple later. It says this about this curtain. And you shall make a veil of blue and scarlet yarns and finely uh, twined linen. And it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang the veil from clasps and the veil shall separate you, the holy place, from the most holy So this giant curtain was hung, and behind it was the very presence of God, and it was kept out. People could not go in. You couldn't even get close to it unless you had a certain pedigree, and you couldn't even get in it unless you were the high priest, and you only got in it once a year. And to separate the holiness and the presence of God was this veil, and on this veil was embroidered cherubim. Now why cherubim? Why were there cherubim on this curtain? If you go back and see where this word cherubim is first used in the Bible, it's called the law of first mention when you're studying the Bible. It's really helpful. You're like, what does this word mean? Go back to where it's first mentioned. You get little clues on to why this was used the way it was. If you go back to where cherubim was first used, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Right after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden due to their sin. And in Exodus chapter 3 verse 23 it says, And God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken And he drove out the man, and east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away to guard the way of the tree of life. The Garden of Eden 
spoke of the presence of God. It's where man walked with God in the cool of the day. It's where he had fellowship and intimacy with God. But due to their sin, they were kicked out. Paradise was lost. And in order for man not to go back into this tree of life, and go back into the presence of God, God placed a cherubim there. And then later on, he said, I want you to embroider this cherubim on the veil to separate your sin from my holiness. Even this word veil, the Hebrew root word for veil, is, means harsh, to separate, or to break apart. Everything that this veil looked like and what this word meant in Hebrew carries this idea of a harsh separation between God and man. And Mark says, what happens at the cross is this veil was torn. This separation that we have with, from God puts everything out of place. This, the separation that, that, that was done in the Garden of Eden affects the environment, childbirth, pain, death, but most of all, it affects relationships. But all of these are reflections and symptoms of a huge, huge problem. You and my, our separation from God. And here's the gospel. When Jesus Christ died, he died to bring us to God. He died to remove the sin and the brokenness that our sin brought, that we might know God. That the, he stood in the waters of baptism, identifying with our sin, standing in the very thing that washed all these people's sins away, to identify with people, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, that, that the veil would be torn and that we could know God. That is the gospel. St. Augustine said in his confessions, Thou madest us for thyself, and our, hearts is, our heart is restless until it repose in thee, until it finds rest in thee. That is the gospel. The gospel is not stuff. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's not even justice. The gospel is that we get God. That is the gospel. And that we get God, we get everything else. C.S. Lewis closed his famous book, Mere Christianity, like this. One of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, look for yourself or try to find yourself. Try to find your true self and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live, that you and I could have God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. That God, in it we see Jesus. In it we see what you've done for us. In it we see how you've came to save us and rescue us, Lord. And it's not by going to church. It's not by by trying to find freedom and, and, and financial things or, or, or having a family or career, it's not found in any of those things. Not, and I really believe there's people here, even this morning, that that's, that's the story of their life, trying to find salvation, the next thing. I pray that we'd find you in the wilderness, God. That we would see and savor, savor Jesus Christ who died in our place, that we can have God. 
We love you and we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.